Well, Ronald Edwin Hunkler died in 2020 at the age of 85. He had worked as an engineer for NASA for 40 years. He was very successful, even contributed to the Apollo missions back in the 60s. He was well-liked by his colleagues and uh, considered just an outstanding guy. But Ronald had a secret. Uh, he had something from his past that he hoped nobody at NASA would ever find out about. He hoped that nobody would find out about it, and they really didn't, until after his death when it became public. What happened was, in 1949, Ronald Hunkler was 14 years old, and he began to dabble in the occult and became curious about satanic practices. Shortly after that, he reported hearing knocking and scratching sounds from his bedroom walls. Uh, his pastor, Luther Schultz, witnessed, when visiting him there, um, witnessed Ronald sitting in a chair when the chair started moving. His parents said they'd seen the same thing. In fact, there was scarred marks all over the floor of the house because of heavy furniture that had moved. Uh, witnesses recorded that they had seen a picture of Jesus um, shaking when Ronald would walk past it, this picture that was hanging on the wall in the house. Um, eventually, a uh, Jesuit monk by the name of William Bowdern believed that the boy was demon-possessed, and he came over to do an exorcism, and after 20 failed attempts, uh, the boy was committed to a Catholic hospital in St. Louis. It's really part of the story is that the reason they sent him there is that writing began to appear on his chest and his hip in scratches saying that he needed to go to St. Louis even though the writing would appear with him watching it without him actually scratching it. Pretty freaky stuff. So he was sent off to St. Louis. He was committed to this place um, where various priests and monks tried to uh, help him. Uh, one night, suddenly, uh, he broke into, quote, a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing of Latin phrases, unquote. And after that episode, everything went calm, and he was never bothered, and or none of the strange experiences ever happened again in his life. But his whole life, he worried that people would find out about it, because uh, in 1971, this is 22 years later, William... Peter Blatty interviewed the witnesses of what had happened to Ronald when he was a son and when he was a boy. And uh, Blatty wrote a novel that was made into a movie, the most terrifying movie of the 1970s known as The Exorcist. And so that was the boy that the movie was based on. Um, I have avoided seeing The Exorcist. I've never seen it. I would recommend that you do the same if you haven't seen it. Uh, don't, don't do that. But to me, something that's more terrifying than the fact that The Exorcist was actually based on real events and on an actual person that was demon-possessed is that the Bible tells us demon possession is true. So if you dare, turn with me tonight to uh, Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is the, the account of what happened after the Mount of Transfiguration. So last week we looked at Jesus and his glory and the glimpse of the kingdom come that was given to uh, James, John, and Peter with Jesus on the mountain. Remember that when Moses came and Elijah came? And so we looked at that in some depth. But now we go back to reality. They're coming down the mountain. 
And in this cursed world, all good things must come to an end. And as these apostles trudge down the hill back to reality, they are confronted with a chaotic and traumatic situation involving a dad and a demon. Let's read this in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy And gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Well, we're going to look at four responses to unbelief so that you will see the need for faith in God. We're going to look at this in these four scenes. The dad's desperation, the devil's devastation, the denizen's doubting, and the deliverer's deity. And that's kind of the... the the flow of the passage here. So let's look at this. The dad's desperation in verse 37. As they come down, behold a man, verse 38, from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. This happens as they're coming down from the mountain. You know, this happens on the next day. Much of the Christian life is lived this way, isn't it? You have these mountaintop experiences, these kind of victorious moments, and they're followed by... The, the reality, the, the anticlimax of what the world is like, living in a sin-cursed world, the dark valley lows. The words on the next day when they came down from the mountain contrasts this earthly event from the amazing kingdom glory that we've just seen. And I, I, I think this is very deliberate, the way it's been recorded here and the way that it transpired is that you've got this, this glimpse of kingdom come that's so amazing that Peter says, let's stay up here forever, but it's not yet time for that. We have to deal with the things that happen in the world. And so they're confronted with this, really thrown in the deep end of despair as they come down the mountain. But in the kingdom, there will be no desperation, and there will be no demons, and there will be no disease, and there will be no need for deliverance. But until then, sin thrives like a weed, and so does unbelief. And so this man cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he's my only child. This dad is absolutely desperate. In fact, um, Mark chapter 9 fleshes it out a little bit for us. In Mark chapter 9, it tells us um, that he, he comes to Jesus and says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the most poignant prayers in the Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. And so this man who's desperate comes to Jesus with this interesting mix of faith and doubt. And he's begging Jesus for help. He wants this problem gone. Whatever you've ever been through with your children... I would submit to you that this is worse. This is the worst thing that could happen to a parent is that their child is possessed by a demon. This demon um, is trying to hurt the child constantly. Mark 9 also tells us that um, 
He was cast into the fire, into water to destroy him. Here in Luke, we're told that it tries to shatter him. It hurts him. And, and the, the dad doesn't know what to do. There's nothing the dad can do. One of my children, when they were very little, had sleep apnea where they would stop breathing while they were sleeping. They had to sleep with a heart monitor. And until we got the heart monitor, Kim and I would take turns just being awake, watching the baby to see if they stopped breathing. And when, once we got the heart monitor... It took quite a while before we were even able to sleep. You're just on edge all the time, and every once in a while the alarm would go off, and we would run in, and there would be the baby turned blue already. You know, that took so long for the heart to stop before, before the heart monitor registered. I mean, it was it was devastating for us. It was like all-consuming. It's all you think about every time your baby naps. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be this man that he's constantly fearing for the life of his child if he just turns his back on his child for a moment what if the the demon throws him into water and he drowns what if the demon throws him in a fire and he burns and this is what's happening so he says if you can do anything have compassion with me mark tells us how often do we come to god expecting him to help but not really expecting there to be success we, we need the help we know we need to go there but we're not quite sure if this is going to work or not well, what the man does that's right is he comes to Jesus with his problem. What he does that's wrong is he doubts who Jesus is. You can't pray a prayer like this. God, if you're out there and you exist, then please help me in this way. I've heard people pray that before. Maybe you have too. That's, if you're out there, dot, 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 show me a sign. If you're out there, deliver me from this thing. If you're out there, meet my needs. Then I will commit myself to you. But Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. The very least requirement that you need to believe when coming to God is that he exists. So you are wasting your breath if you ever pray a prayer, God, if you're out there. Make prayer your first port of call. Don't treat God like a rabbit's foot, like a superstition. You know, you rub the rabbit's foot and hope that it does something good for you. It's like, no, you need to believe that God is real and that he can help you. And so this dad does come to Jesus and kind of dumps this problem on Jesus. And so we see now the devil's devastation. That was the dad's desperation. The second part of the scene here is the symptoms that he talks about. Verse 39, behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. The, the, if you compare the accounts, it's just this devastating thing, this, this throwing him around, throwing him into the fire, throwing him into water, trying to hurt him physically, the crying out of this demonic possession. So we learn two facts from this list of, um, of the, the diagnosis here. One is that demonic power is real and it's dangerous. So... Christians are at an advantage in spiritual warfare in that we understand and believe that the spiritual realm is real. But you also need to remember that it's dangerous. It's always dangerous. And you might be thinking, why is he hitting this so hard? I'm not tempted to go and, you know, carve a pentagram on my forearm and do some sort of satanic ritual tonight. Um, good, that's good. But there are people out there who are curious about this, these things, even Christians. And so I didn't realize this until one day I was asked to teach a Bible study at a, at a church. Um, not the church I was part of, but another church. 
and I, I was asked to come and teach their youth group. And so I came, and I, I, I would meet this youth group every, I think it was Friday afternoon, and it was mostly uh, eight, nine, and tenth graders that were in this group, maybe 20, 30 kids, if I remember correctly, and we would just go through a little Bible study. And, um, and as I got to know them, I found out that the girls in the group, the grade nine girls, there were a few of them, I don't know, four or six of them or whatever, these friends, opened up to me that they had been engaged in satanic practices, that they were fascinated by the occult, that they had learnt Wicca magic. You know what Wicca magic is? Well, you don't need to. Uh, it's good that you don't. But they were, they were into this Wicca and they told me about, because um, they were kind of like saying, so we believe the stuff that you're talking about because we've seen with our own eyes these supernatural things. And I mean, I was like new to this, and I didn't know what, I mean, I hadn't been to seminary yet or whatever when I was teaching this little, little Bible study, and I just, I didn't even know what to say. I was just like, my, my jaw was on the floor. Like, what kind of idiot plays with Satanism and then comes to a Bible study? <laughs> like... Uh, uh, I just didn't have a category for like a good, clean-cut, normal little, you know, um, ninth-grade girl who worships Satan. But that's what that's what I had in this little Bible study. And uh, they said to me, "Don't worry, it's white magic." And I said, "I don't know what that means." But they explained to me that there's black magic that's dangerous and bad, where you know the demons will do bad things to you. But then there's white magic that's good, and it can bring healing and you know, uh, it can help with things, white magic. I mean, that's, that's like the goose saying that the farmer's being real kind to me, I know, because he feeds me so much. It's like, yes, he has a long-term plan for you. That's why he wants you fat. I mean, you can't trust demons. If they're doing good things, it's because they have a long-term plan for you. This is a, if you take one thing away from the sermon, this is the application point. Never trust a demon. I've told you in the past, before the books that I've had to write reviews on and that kind of stuff, that talk about these, these uh, encounters with demons. And the one guy says, yeah, the demon told me that... Um, there's power in the name of Jesus, and when you speak to it, that it has to obey and everything. And why would the demon tell me that unless it was under the authority of Jesus to tell me that? I'm like, because it's lying to you. It's, it's trying to get false doctrine. They're dirty, rotten scoundrels. They're liars who lie. If, if there's anything that ever comes from demons, you, you need to be aware that there's a, a strategy that involves this kind of devastation. So rather just stay away from all of that stuff. And so we see here this terrible pain that this child is put through because of this. The spirit, verse 39, says it seizes him. Possession is different from harassment. Like you see a demon harassing Saul, for example, in the Old Testament. Um, I'm not sure what that is, but it, it kind of torments him. Like he can see this thing um, and so that's why David gets called in to play the harp and kind of calm his spirit. Possession is different. Possession is when the, the spirit of this creature, this fallen angel, this demon, occupies the same space that your spirit occupies in your body. And so you could, you, you, maybe you've heard of people that have like split personalities. This is one possible explanation for that, that you have multiple spirits 
personalities living inside the space of one person. And they flip between the person. Uh, there have been cases where people can speak different languages suddenly um, that they couldn't speak before. Or a right-handed person can now write suddenly with their left hand when the other personality takes on. This, this is all possibly demon involvement and possession where they take, take your hand and move it. And you, you have uh, Donald Walsh who wrote a series um, called Conversations with God that was a, a wildfire bestseller worldwide, Donald Walsh. Conversations with God. And if you read Conversations with God, it'll tell you that the way God communicated with him is possessed his arm and through automatic writing wrote responses to the questions that he was asking. And this is published in a book and you can buy the book in Christian bookstores because it says Conversations with God. It should have a subtitle. Actually, Conversations with a Demon Who Calls Himself God. People who study um, psychology will know that Jung, in his book, uh, Dreams and Visions and Dreams, Visions and whatever the other thing is, doesn't matter, um, that he says as well that he was possessed by a, well, he, he doesn't say he was possessed by a demon. He says through automatic writing he was given these answers from demons that he formulated into Jungian philosophy and psychology that is taught in universities and maybe you've been to a therapist that uses Jung. One of the things I'm really scared about Jordan Peterson is he's always quoting Jung. He's always quoting Jung. Well, Jung got his stuff from demons. So just beware of that. Now, I, I want to I make this important point at this point. The demons cannot possess Christians. This child must have been an unbeliever who had been dabbling in the occult in some way. Uh, they... Believers don't, let me give you a few verses. We're not vulnerable to possession of, by demons. First John chapter 4, verse 3 says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, from, is not from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verse 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He's saying, you Christians, don't worry about that because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, Romans 8.38, Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, and that phrase, rulers, is referring to demons, principalities, um, as used elsewhere in the New Testament. So neither angels nor demons nor things present or things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus. There is no vulnerability to possession. And then, um, on the other hand, people who are not believers, if, you're not, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you have big problems then. Um, because John eight forty eight, Jesus told Pharisees who didn't have the spirit in them, they were not true believers, followers of Christ. He said, you are of your father the devil. That's John eight forty eight. Now before the parents in the room freak out, well, my kid's not a believer yet. What? Here's a little bit of hope. If you just turn over the page to um, Luke 11. You know, demon possession of children is very rare. There's only one other case in the Bible, and that's the girl in Acts 16, um, the young girl who is possessed by a demon and can tell the future. Um, 
But in Luke 11.24, Jesus gives us some insight into demons. He says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will come I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So this is an interesting thing where Jesus just kind of mentions this information about demons that we wouldn't know otherwise. But what, it, what we learn from this is that demons can't just possess whoever they want. They need cooperation. If, if they get cast out of a person, then they wander around in waterless places. They're like looking for a host. And it seems to be, from what Jesus says, that that's not an easy thing to do. It's not like they just find the next unbeliever and just pop into them. You know, that's not how it works. There needs to be a, a cooperation, a, a readiness, an invitation for the occultic... Um, through occultic practices to get the spirit to possess the person. So what you can do to protect your children against this is to teach them to stay away from those practices. That's becoming harder and harder in our society because occultic practices are beginning to be normalized, or have been for a while, being normalized in our society. You go and look at the, the TV shows that are targeted to teenagers about witches and wizards and all sorts of supernatural things and ghost stories. I mean, it's just, it proliferates the, the teen market. The books, some of the most popular books that children read and that teens read have to do with sorcery and magic and vampires and werewolves and it's all very innocent and sweet and romantic, except that it's not. Except that there's this foundation of occultic practice that becomes normalized in the child's thinking. So they become curious about it. When they find out that, oh, maybe some of this stuff is real, it sounds so cool in the book, I'm going to go and check it out. So you need to equip your children and train them to discern these things and that, to realize that the only reliable source of any information about the, the spiritual world is to be found in the Bible. You can go back to Luke 9. So somehow this boy must have uh, involved himself in the occult and he got possessed. And what we need to train our children to do is to resist the devil, not invite him in. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, James 4, 7. Warn your children to be alert to the wiles of Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. So you can train your kids any way you want, but one strategy, the strategy I prefer in my own children is to I don't want them to find out about these things that are dangerous for them from their friends. I want them to find out about these things 
at an age-appropriate time. I mean, we don't tell them about demons when they're three, you know, <laughs> but at an age-appropriate time as they're maturing and only you know your kid and you know your kid's age, what, what we choose to do is we, we want to expose them to the truths from a biblical point of view. Rather than pretend it's not there or ignore it or tell them it's not true, tell them, well, the parts that are true are here in Scripture. Let, let me show you what what's true about this. I always want my children in any conversation with their peers to be the ones that are most informed by the Bible on any topic. Whether it's demons or sex. I want my kids to know what they know from the Bible more than their friends know that they've learned from who knows where, right? So that's one strategy. We see the devil's de devastation. Thirdly, we see the denizens doubting. And of course, I had to use the word denizen just because it started with a D. Maybe you can come up with a better one. A denizen is a, a townsperson, um, the townspeople there. Look at verse 40. The, the, this, the man says, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So while Jesus is on the mountain, the other disciples are waiting down, and he comes to them. Where's Jesus? Well, uh, we don't know. He's in the mountain somewhere. Okay, well, can you help me? And they couldn't. Verse 41, and Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted or perverted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. I mean, what word would you use to describe Jesus' mood? I mean, you always want to be very careful when you use words like annoyed, irritated, upset, frustrated. These are... These are terms that we use of ourselves that you like, Jesus never got annoyed at anyone. But there's some visceral reaction that Jesus has here to the fact that this man has this child that is demon-possessed, came to the disciples, they were not able to do anything about it, he's desperate, he comes to Jesus, and whenever someone comes to Jesus with a problem, he responds with great kindness and gentleness, but not here. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's in the, the... Is there any way of saying this in a nice, gentle way? Oh, faithless and twisted, perverted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your boy here. No, he's... I don't know what the word for it is. Agitated? Angry? I mean, in a, in a righteous way? Not a sinful way, of course. But anyway, what is it that, as we would say, what, what is it that's that gets his goat about the situation. Well, some people think that he's upset at the disciples, that they can't do anything about this. But um, I don't think that that's what's happening here because the, the disciples are just as disappointed that they couldn't do it as Jesus. They weren't lacking faith. They thought they'd be able to. They didn't understand why they couldn't. If you go read the other accounts, um, in, uh, in Matthew 17, after the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down as well. In Mark 9, when, after Transfiguration, he comes down as well. And the same event is, is accounted there. And you, when you add them together, you see the disciples are like, we don't know why we couldn't do this. And Jesus says to them that this is a particular type of demon that you would not be able to do. This one only responds to prayer and fasting. Now, Jesus didn't have to pray and fast because, you know, he's like the ruler of the world, so, of the universe, so he can do what he wants. But the, this was a rank of demon that the apostles did not have authority over to cast out, which is very, very interesting in itself because we learn, we see these glimpses in Scripture of demons having different ranks 
with different titles. That's why they are called rulers, as I read earlier. That's why they're called principalities. Um, this, that's also why, like in the book of Daniel, you, you, ha you have this demon that's fighting against the angel that stops the angel getting to Daniel, and he, and he starts talking about these demons, and he calls him the ruler of Persia, and the, you know, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And so Michael, the archangel, who's the prince of your people, the Israelites, had to come and help me to beat the prince. And you're just like, what is going on here? Well, there's different ranks of angels and different ranks of demons. And this one was apparently one that the apostles didn't have authority over. Really, really interesting. When you... Dealing with demons has a lot to do with authority. They don't have to listen to you. And you need to remember that. You see that in Acts 19, where the people are like, I bind you, you know, in the name of Paul, that, uh, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the, and the demon says to these seven exorcists, well, I know who Paul is, <laughs> and I know who Jesus is, but who are you? And then the demon beats the snot out of them and strips them naked and sends them out, because that's what demons do. So you don't just get to boss demons around. The book of Jude tells us that as well, that um, the archangel Michael himself did not rebuke Satan, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. He's like, rebuking Satan is above even the archangel Michael's pay grade. So these people who are like, you need to bind Satan and bind the demon in the name of the bind, blah, blah, they don't know what they're talking about. The book of Jude specifically says don't do that. You're blaspheming angelic majesties out of ignorance, and it's dangerous. So, so I don't think it's the 12 that he's upset at, yeah, the, the disciples. Um, some people say he's upset at the dad, you know, because the dad doesn't have faith, otherwise this would have happened. But uh, the text actually tells us it's not the dad, because he says here in verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you, but in the Greek, it's a you plural. So that's, that's a case where it would have been very helpful for us if the ESV translated it, y'all. See? Southerners are more biblical because we have, the, we have the plural in there. So it should say, how long am I to be with y'all and bear with y'all? And then there's a pause, let's say, and he says, bring your son here, and the your is singular. So, so Greek makes it more plain. So... He's upset with the y'all, but when he speaks to you, he's not, to, to the man. So who is he upset with here? Well, it says it's a faithless generation. This is the, the denizens of the town, all the people standing there. Where is your faith? And they're representatives of the inhabitants of all of Israel. Jesus is upset at the whole society. There's a sense in which the entire society, the collective doubt of the nation of Israel, is what pulled them away from God to the point that demons can have their way with them and that the followers of Christ are helpless to, to do anything about it. The entire collective generation of faithless people have led themselves into a situation where Satan has free reign. It's the opposite of the kingdom ideal that they just saw with Jesus on the mountain. In other words, it's like Jesus saying, you know, y'all reject the ways of God and then you're surprised when God's followers aren't able to help you get out of the mess that you're in. You know, 
how faithless is our generation? Our society as a whole, worldwide, trying to function without God, doubting that he even exists. Now the mess that we're getting ourselves into as a collective society, not even the church can fix that. We can, we can do the best we can. We can do a little bit here and there wherever we have influence and wherever there's churches, they're doing what they can and you see kingdom principles being worked out wherever you see churches doing the kingdom work. But, man, we're in the minority, aren't we? <laughs> 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2023. <laughs> it's this type of generation that faults the church with not being able to fix society. That generation thinks the church is the problem. The only problem with the church is that we can't fix that. It's too far gone. That's what you see with these denizens and their doubting. And then the final scene we see here is the deliverer's deity. So the only hope here is Jesus, and thankfully he's there. Verse 42, while he was coming, so while the, the boy was coming to be healed, or the father's bringing the boy, the demon threw him to the ground, threw the boy to the ground, and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. See, there's no hope for this child, and there's no hope for his dad, and there's no hope for the whole generation except for God. And they get it because the majesty of God is on display when Jesus displays his authority over that demon. The only hope that for us and our generation is the same hope for them that God is real and that he can do miracles like this one. Whatever situation you ever find yourself in, you're never going to be in a more desperate situation than a child with a demon. And yet Jesus has complete and utter authority over that situation. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't have to draw anything and get holy water and chant and try 20 times. He just rebukes the unclean spirit and it disappears. The demon's no match for the creator of the world. And none of your problems are either. I know they feel real to you. They are real to you and that's okay. But you need to put them next to God. You always have to keep God in the picture. God brings perspective. I told you, if you have a little anthill and you put one of those little plastic soldiers, you know, those little green soldier men next to it, then you take a picture, it looks like a little soldier next to a mountain. But you get rid of that little soldier and you put an actual soldier, you know, like an army ranger in his gear with his, his M4 and his boots next to that, you don't even see the mountain anymore, right? You're looking at the warrior. That's what you need to do with God. You need to, you need to put your problem in perspective and realize God is in control. 
and he's powerful and he's good and he loves you and he's aware and he knows about your situation and he wants you to turn to him and he wants you to cry out to him for help. And so if you're going through something and you aren't being delivered from it, there must be a reason. It's not like God is too busy somewhere else or he didn't know or he can't hear you or he, or he can't do anything about it. It's because he wants you where you are and he's giving you the grace to go through what you're going through and he's there with you. And you have to remember that and you have to keep him in the picture. And it just puts your problem where it belongs. Puts it into scale. Well, there's a verse I want to leave you with. It's a verse that I kind of have semi-memorized from the Carmen song. I don't know if anyone even knows who Carmen is. He was like a rocker in the 1990s. Does anyone else know who that is? Okay. Carmen. Do you know which song I'm going to... I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Romans 16... 19 says. That was part of the, the little riff. Romans 16, 19 says. And I'll just read the ESV. I'll read the whole verse. For your, dis- your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It was that little song that we played over and over. Romans 16, 19 says, I forget it already. Oh yeah, be innocent of evil. Be innocent of evil and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Being innocent of evil, what does that mean? It means you don't need to be an expert in the occult to be safe from the occult. The more ignorant you are of it, the better. All you need to know about it is what the Bible says and you do need to know what the Bible says but you don't need to know the terminology you don't need to know all the books that everybody's reading you know all you need to do is know what the bible says and that is that the god of peace will crush satan's head just as was predicted in genesis but you do need to realize that our world is fascinated by these things and i recently discovered much to my dismay, that The Exorcist is being remade into a new movie that's coming out soon that I highly recommend you don't watch. But it does show that our society is still as fascinated with this stuff as they were in the 1970s. They love this concept that's out there. Sometimes demons possess our cell phones. They can possess our animals like cats. But you need to trust that your deliverer has the power over demons, over disease, and even over death. And if you struggle with any doubt, pray, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this um, warning in Scripture. It really is a disturbing account. Um, And yet we are so relieved when we see once again our Savior's omnipotence on display. Just how powerful Jesus was was when he was on earth that these these forces these cosmic forces this present darkness that was so real and so devastating and and uh, so out of the realm of possibility for anyone to do anything about it he he just came and showed his power and his deity proving that he was god and that's why the people were so moved by the majesty of god because jesus is god So, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for the safety and the security that you give us because you are in us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to share the gospel with those that are lost so that they too can run to you 
as refuge from Satan and his minions. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would not be surprised if you have some questions to follow up after this sermon or, or anything else. So we've got some time for Q&A. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, so what Jeff's talking about, there's an interesting element. So what he's mentioning is that there's, there's movements in society that seem um, infectious at times, is one way that, that they, they spread. And it's a, it's, a, it's a thinking about something. So, for example, the example Jeff gave there, the uh, transitioning from one gender to another and the surgery that goes with that and the, the hormone treatment that goes with that, uh, people try to transition out of that, try to reverse it, but there's often lifelong damage done at that point to a person's body and to their their psyche as well, and the, the identity crisis that happens. And um, more and more people are now discovering that that trend that started a few years ago that's caught on like wildfire. You mentioned that you had one or two, and now re recently there's now 40 in the school that you teach at. So it is spreading, it, it really is. Um, and now people are seeing that the, that experiment and that spreading, it's resulting in very high numbers of suicides from these people who, who try this thing that they think is going to make them happy and restore their identity. And then when they discover that it didn't work and has confused their identity even more, they become hopeless, hopeless and take their own lives. And so Jeff's comment is that that seems demonic. So I want to address that because... The, the one way demons can influence a person is the way we just saw now in Luke 9, actual possession of an individual person. Um, I don't believe that's what's happening in these types of movements. I think what's happening in these types of movements is the other way that demons infiltrate society, and that is through um, thoughts, thought systems that are introduced, who knows how, maybe through possession of certain people, certain teachers or lecturers or authors or movie makers or whatever, but these philosophies permeate society and they are demonic teachings. And you see this in places like, uh, I'm going blank on some of the scriptures, but like in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about um, these strongholds. Um, in Colossians where we're told to take your thoughts captive. When it says take thoughts captive, it's not actually talking about a, a person trying not to think a thought. It's talking about these thoughts and philosophies um, out there that have been introduced by Satan that we need to defend against. So there's this permeation of ways of thinking in our society. Um, in Ephesians uh, 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. In 1 Corinthians, he's called the god of this world. Um, in John 8, 44, that's where Jesus says, or John 8, 40 is where Jesus says, you are of your father the devil and you do the deeds of your father the devil. And um, uh, Ephesians 2 as well, we're called uh, that we, the, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the, the 
force that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we too were children of wrath, just like the others. There's a sense that this is the course of the world. This is the way Satan has made things happen. And we are, the more you conform to that, the more you are influenced by these demons and, and satanic teachings. So I do, I agree with you. I think that there's this, I think that there's no other real explanation for how like educated, sophisticated minds can be so confused about something that is so simple as the binary gender. I mean, you have experts, you have doctors, you have scientists who are like super confused by this stuff. And then you ask a kid and the kid gets it right. And you're like, okay, so we're not crazy. They're crazy. Anyway, don't get me started. Any other questions? Yes, Carol, and then Gwen. Wow, you know hippies that are very well uh, theologically informed. Um, <laughs> so what, what Carol's asking is, what, what is the role of prayer in this? In a, let's say there's a person in your life who has come under some sort of um, teaching or f- worldview or thought that is detrimental to them. So it doesn't only, it's not only LGBTQ um, transgender issues, but uh, people who are in cults are also under this, it's kind of like under a spell, you know? Um, there's various types of delusions and, and false teachings out there. I mean, I, I think Darwinism is one of those, you know, that, that educated people ignore evidence in order to believe by faith something that is um, against God's word and stuff like that. So I think that there's lots of these strongholds and philosophies out there. And so Carol's question is like, so what, what about prayer as, as you're praying about this and you're not seeing any, any change? Well... I think prayer is prayer is a, a really good first port of call. Um, the only chapter in the whole Bible that tells us how to resist demons and, and do spiritual warfare. You often hear people talk about this, like entire conferences on spiritual warfare. And um, I've been to one and they didn't even mention this chapter. And it's the only chapter in the Bible that deals with spiritual warfare is Ephesians chapter 6. And Ephesians chapter 6 tell, tells us basically the way that you, you protect yourself against spiritual warfare and the influence of demons is, you know, salvation, the word of God, sharing the gospel. You know, it's, a, it's the armor of God passage. You know, you've got the, the word of God and the belt of truth and the, the helmet of salvation and the shoes of readiness. And I should really memorize that. My kids haven't memorized, but you know what it is. And, but the point there is know your Bible, know the gospel, share the gospel, um, these are the, this is what you do. There's no like get the holy water, use the word bind and Jesus in the same thing. There's none of that. It's all just your spiritual maturity. So when you're praying for a person that's come under that spell, the main thing you ought to be praying for them is their salvation. Because once a person gets saved, everything else falls in line. Once a person understands truth and that they can anchor them, 
their lives on the truth of God's word, then they now have a tool and the spirit has ammunition to drive out all of that, that false teaching. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope that's helpful. What, what she said is, like, I don't want to be a hippie and just say that, well, God trusts, you know, we just trust God. And it's like, so that's why I made the comment, you must have theologically informed hippie friends because hippies don't do that. But I know what you mean. I, you don't want to be like just um, disengaged and apathetic and, and, well, I trust in God's sovereignty. So, but, but trusting in God's sovereignty is not nothing. It's, it's a fight to believe that this person is in this delusion and I'm praying to God to remove it and he's not doing it because he wants this person to be in that delusion at this time. And that's a hard thing for us to get our minds around, but it is biblical. If you look at Matthew chapter 13, and I think it's verse 13 as well. Um, in Matthew chapter 13, he says, that the reason I, I speak in parables, he says to the disciples, why do you teach in parables? And they say, because to you it has been revealed the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been revealed. And so there is a time when God wants these people to not believe the truth. First Thessalonians, it says, um, I think it might be Second Thessalonians, um, that God sends a delusion so that they might not believe the truth. And so I have a blog post on the Cripplegate about how that's my explanation for what's happening at the moment with the LGBTQ transgender issues that, that so many people are believing in. The only thing that makes sense to me is that God has sent this delusion so that they believe this as part of their punishment. And the only hope for that is repentance in the gospel. Good. Glenn, you had a question, and I think someone else had one there. Uh huh. Yeah, so Glenn is asking about the Sunday night sermon um, in Judges. Um, uh, 9, it's Judges 9, right? Yeah, uh, I should remember, I just preached it. Judges chapter 9, and um, what it says is there that God sold them into the hands of the Philistines. Um, you know, when I was studying for the passage, I, that, that word sold also kind of stuck out of me, and I looked into it a little bit, and I, I couldn't find anyone giving a, a good explanation for why the narrator used that word to describe what God did, um, except that it's kind of the imagery of God's possession, that, you know, Israel is God's possession, but here he's handing them over to the Philistines. It's like he's, he's trading them off. He's selling them to the Philistines. Like, I don't, because I don't, remember, in the context there, he's saying, you need to be consistent in the gods that you serve. You, you've cried out to them um, and worshiped them, and now you're in trouble. Go cry out to them to deliver you. And, I mean, that, yeah, it's kind of a, there's an irony there. There's a, remember, he's not commanding idolatry, he's commanding consistency. You have made this choice, now you must keep your choice, you know. Choose your love and love your choice. Yes, Will.
sure. So, so Will's, yeah, so for those of you who didn't hear, Will is um, asking about the role of fasting, uh, specifically as it relates to demon oppression. So I, the reason I didn't go into that tonight is because, uh, I, thankfully, it's not in the Luke 9 passage, but it is, it is in the other passages. Um, so that it is actually what happened where Jesus said this type only goes out through prayer and fasting. And so it seems that uh, in order for that particular type of demon, and I mean, I only know what you know about that. We aren't told anything else about that. But that particular type or rank of demon um, required more authority than the apostles were given. They needed to, I guess, realize that and go directly to God in prayer and fasting to ask for him to do this miracle on their behalf instead of through them. Um, but your question is, how does that relate to our lives and fasting as a discipline? I mean, that's a big topic, but um, what fasting does, so fasting is the voluntary abstinence of food for a period of time um, in order to, in religious context, in order for you to focus your prayer and attention on a particular item that is concerning you. So some people do it voluntarily, they schedule it in, I'm going to fast on Wednesday. Other, some other people in my own life, it, it, when I fast, it's usually as a response to a very tangible burden that I'm going through where I lose my appetite. And then I see that loss of appetite as a prompting from God to, to fast. And so when I, I fast, I've probably the longest I've ever fasted is three days um, without eating anything during those three days. And that, was, that took no discipline from me. It was very easy for me to do um, because of the emotional and spiritual strain I was under during that time. And when it ended, that was when my appetite returned. And so we call it a discipline, but I think also it can just be a natural part of the rhythm of your spiritual life if you're alert to it and you realize that. Like, you don't force yourself to eat. If you're, if you're consumed with a certain issue, then pray about it and, and you won't want to eat. But there is also a place for fasting as a discipline where you say, I'm going to fast in order to, if I'm making a big decision, or if I'm praying for a certain person, because what it does is it focuses your prayer. It's like, I'm doing this for a time in order to pray about this one thing particularly intensely. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring some teaching on that when it shows up in the text. Good, did anyone else have a question? Yes, Haley. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so, what Haley's just to repeat it for the video here. She's asking about um, people who have certain psychological diagnoses, like bipolar, and what were the other ones you mentioned? Like paranoid schizophrenia, and I mean, even to the point of um, personality disassociation disorder. Uh, you know, the split personality type of stuff. There's certain. I'm, I'm going to ask more broadly than the one you're asking for, but there's, there's certain psychological um, diagnoses that the symptoms of which could easily be seen as 
the same symptoms of demon possession. And her question is, how can you tell the difference or do they go hand in hand? And I, that's a very well-framed question because I, I don't know how a person would tell the difference. I do think that both of those things could be happening in two different people and look the same. Like one person could be um, having this mental, what we call like the, the, the manic episode because they're possessed by a demon Another person might be having that manic episode because they have a, you know, brain disease. It's a, it's a, a dysfunction of the brain is what it is. Um, and a lot of that stuff's quite mysterious. And as you say, do they go hand in hand? Well, yeah, they do because your body and your spirit are so uh, enmeshed that if they, if they separate, you die. Um, and it, what's mysterious about your body and your spirit is that another spirit can enter the same body as well. That's what possession is. Um, so there's just so much we don't know. I mean, I have the same Bible you do. I read the same descriptions. But there's certain activities, behaviors of demon-possessed people, like nakedness is usually part of it. They like to strip down. They like to hurt them. Not they like, sorry. They manifest by stripping down, manifest by hurting themselves. There's a tendency... Um, to use their voice as a weapon. There's, a there's sometimes supernatural strength or superhuman strength involved. There's an isolation of the people. Um, those types of things that you also see happen in people who are mentally unstable, where they will cut themselves, take off their clothes at inappropriate times, isolate themselves from family, become destructive. And so which one's which? I mean, I don't know. I do think that the world views all of it as disease, as psychological problems, where some of it may very well be demon possession. Um, but I would not say to a person that I met that way or someone in your family, oh, well, they must be demon possessed, because we don't know. We just don't know. I mean, the symptoms of this child, the convulsing and the foaming at the mouth, looks like epilepsy. If your kid has epilepsy, I'm not going to say, well, maybe it's demon-possessed. I mean, <laughs> that wouldn't be very sensitive. And also, there's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. Um, now, if your child was perfectly healthy and didn't have any history of epilepsy and then started looking into seances and Ouija boards and dabbling with the occult and at that time developed foaming at the mouth and convulsing, that would be very coincidental if they suddenly developed epilepsy. I would say, no, that would be an, an evidence of, or an indication of possible demon possession. So maybe the same thing with bipolar and schizophrenia, split personality or dissociative personality disorder, those types of things that happen when, if they happen at the same time as occultic dabbling, I would be more like, because remember, I, I strongly believe you have to cooperate with the demon and invite them in. They can't just pop into you based on what Jesus said. I don't know if that helps answer the question. Yeah. Don. Yeah, that's a good point. We, we don't need to know the difference to pray for the grace of God into that situation either way. And I'll sometimes pray something like, Lord, you know what's happening there. I don't. Whatever it is, it's serious. Whether it's spiritual or physical, I pray for your intervention. So, you know... But um, if, if I ever had to encounter a person that I believed was actually possessed by a demon, my response would be to preach the gospel to the, to the human. Because the person, if the person can hear the gospel and they believe it, that person can be delivered. Yeah. Good, one more. Hi. Yes. Apparently you 
Manic depressive, yeah. Yeah, manic depressive is, is another way of um, terming the bipolar. So manic refers to like the, the, the up behavior and depressive is the down behavior. And a lot of that can just be, you know, a scrambled psyche that's broken and flipping between the two. And, and I have great compassion on people like that because it's a, it, it seems to me like it would be a harder disease to bear than even a physical one where you're just like dealing with physical pain. There's also the emotional distress of going through it and then the effect that that has on other people. Yeah.